For this evening, I would like to give a commentary on a poem by the <coughs> Vietnamese monk and peace worker and poet Thich Nhat Hanh. And the name of the poem is Call Me By My True Name. And before beginning the poem, we'd just like to speak for a few moments about Thich Nhat Hanh and then read the poem to you and also a short commentary that Thich Nhat Hanh himself has given with the poem. Signatan is Vietnamese, and of course, being Vietnamese, has experienced the devastating horror and terror of war from one year's end to the next, and all the suffering and violence which ensued because of the war. And Living in Vietnam and being a monk and being a man of sustained nonviolence, he committed himself from his very early years to the work for peace, to reconcil reconciliation, and towards the healing of the scars of war, physical, psychological, and spiritual. Thich Nhat Hanh is now in his fifties, and he lives in Plum Village, in the western part of France. In 1966, he was the head, he, he, he began traveling, and in the early 70s, he was the head of the Buddhist peace delegation in Paris during the talks between the Vietnamese and the US. And through his writings at that time, and subsequently, he's become known and very widely loved and respected. His books such as The Cry of Vietnam, The Miracle of Mindfulness, a book, The Raft is Not the Shore, which he co-authored with Dan Berrigan, and his most recent book, A Guide to Walking Meditation, have been very well received and loved, both by peace people in the peace movement as well as people of practice and to quite a considerable degree in his tremendous work, he's acted as a facilitator and as something of a bridge in order that men and women can appreciate and understand that the work for peace cannot just be outer and it cannot just be inner, but it's an embracing of the totality, inner and outer. About <coughs> three 
years ago, he was here in the U.S. and he was sponsored by the Fellowship of Reconciliation, a wonderful, wonderful organization that has worked for years for peace. And the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which is a branch of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And he gave a number of talks, workshops and retreats in different parts of the states. And Tignat Han is a member of the International Advisory Board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, of which uh, I too have the great privilege of being on the same board, and of which uh, Jamie is a member of the Board of Directors here in the U.S. And I remember just one small story that a, a friend of mine told me with regard to the retreat that he sat in upstate New York with Thich Nhat Hanh, which incidentally is spelt T-H-I-C-H, first name, middle name N-H-A-T, and the surname, last name H-A-N-H, Thich Nhat Hanh. And he, was, he sat a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, and it was a time for him to have an interview with him. And he went to his room, and he knocked on Thich Nhat Hanh's door, and there was a few, several seconds of silence. And then Thich Nhat Hanh opened the door, and my friend stand, standing on the other side of, of the door saw the door handle very slowly and very mindfully turning to open. And then he entered into the room and very quietly and very gently Thich Nhat Hanh walked, invited him in and walked to the seat. And a friend said, he didn't need to say anything more. The whole teaching was in the opening of the door. And those who have had the contact with Thich Nhat Hanh, and I've never had the uh, opportunity to to meet with him, and one day I hope to uh, sit with him, uh, have all been touched by his goodwill and good, good humor and love and passion in the work for peace. This poem, Please Call Me By My True Names, has touched perhaps all people that I've spoken to, and it's been used frequently on retreats by teachers in the Vipassana, in the mindfulness tradition, both for its sincerity, its honesty, and its ability to reach us. And perhaps that's always, of course, the, the, the purpose of true and truly beneficial poetry. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel 
hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly, metamorphosing on the surface of the river. And I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am a frog, swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am a grass snake, who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant, selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo, with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labour camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once. So I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. I wonder with the very flow and rhythm of our life I wonder how we're so frequently moving on. Moving on in such a way that it's hardly giving ourselves an opportunity to arrive. And this moving on which takes, takes place in our life, it's like there's a, a push, an underlying push within ourselves which 
instead of giving us the opportunity to really arrive on this earth and really find out what that means, we're pushed on to something else, something other. And though it's not necessarily removed from this world, it's as though the moving never gives us time to stop and be still and what it means to be here and to have arrived as a human being on this planet. And it's like, to use an analogy, sitting in a car and driving at high speed past the nature. And what we see is a kind of blur, a kind of nature, but not a nature which we really feel and which really touches us. Because if we do that, if we are to feel and to experience life in that way, we have to stop. We have to, uh, have to feel that we've arrived and get out of that car, get out of the constant moving on and just be. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. When we begin to arrive and begin to sense and particularly feel what that means, perhaps something inwardly, spiritually occurs inside of us in which the apparent substantiality of difference between oneself and a bud on a spring branch a tiny bird with wings still fragile, a caterpillar in the flower. Perhaps that great difference, in fact, is not so great. And perhaps what contributes to making the difference so different is the movement, the movement of our mind. And the repetition and the frequency and the continuity of it, that it moves so much we can't sense, we can't feel, we can't know with our deep abiding that that flower and that caterpillar and we ourselves are sharing something together. And it's not that that changes everything dramatically. Thich Nhat Hanh continues, I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. And 
And sometimes in that rhythm of our heart, when we are sitting and being still and being mindful of the breathing, which Thich Han speaks frequently about in his writings, we see the, and feel and experience the breathing and we see that in this movement too there's an extraordinary common denominator. The breathing comes and the breathing goes. It has its birth and it has its death. And though it might seem to be a similarity between one breath and the next, when we look deeply, when we are arriving in every second, there's no real repetition. No two breaths in their birth and their death are ever the same. Just as no two birds are, no two buds are, no two jewels are, no two caterpillars are. And so amidst all of this extraordinariness of life and all of its diversity, we find ourselves meeting and experiencing again and again this extraordinary paradox of life, sameness, but not sameness. We look with one set of eyes and we see sameness, we see unity, we feel unity, we experience oneness, and yet there's difference. And as we go deeper, second by second, moment by moment, both the similarity and the dissimilarity begins to show itself again and again and again. And as deep as we go, as deep as this extraordinary movement back and forth between sameness and not sameness shows itself incredible subtleties. Because we've said we've arrived, we're arriving. We're willing to stop. And in Thich Nhat Hanh's book, A Guide to Walking Meditation, he says something rather beautiful and in a rather touching way. I always think that I like this world even better than I would the pure land because I like what the world offers. Lemon trees, orange trees, banana trees, pine trees, apricot trees and willow trees. Some people say that in the pure land there are valuable lotus ponds seven gem trees and roads paved with gold, and that there are special celestial birds. I don't think I would like these very much. I would rather not walk on roads paved with gold and silver. I wouldn't even use roads that were lined with marble here on earth. Dirt roads with meadows on both sides are my favourite. I love pebbles and leaves covering the ground. I love bushes, streams, bamboo fences and ferries. When I was a young novice, I told my master, if the pure land doesn't have lemon trees, then I don't want to go. 
sometimes in the division of our mind and the way that we relate to the world, we view it in a very simplistic and, and frequently with a somewhat unquestioning obedience to the conform in terms of conforming to the patterns of mind, we make the division of this is me, self, and that out there is not me, not myself. And we make, take this, make this division as though it's the ultimate truth of things, the final reality, the real way things are. And when we do that, of course, we find ourselves in that very movement of mind, picking out things from the world which we want to have, possess, identify with and own. Because if we don't do that, the self has no support for itself. It must have, it must get, it must gain, it must acquire to keep it there. And sometimes in that, there's this forgetfulness. A forgetfulness that what is truly wondrous and miraculous and mysterious in life doesn't require ownership. The dirt roads with the meadows, the pebbles and leaves covering the ground, the bushes and the streams, the fences and the ferries. And when, in that, when we are touched, and when there is that awareness which is embracing and, and genuinely choiceless in the communication with life, then what really reaches has got nothing to do with self wanting not self. It's got to do with an, another whole level of depth altogether in which you and I can receive can be touched by without the movement of self. And then perhaps in this unusual world with all of its diversity in it, perhaps we begin to see a little bit of what might be called the pure land. I am I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayflower metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. And sometimes, too, in our being and our walking on this walking on this earth. With our thought, with our ideas, with our judgments and our conclusions, we form hard and fixed views of good and bad, right and wrong, cruel and unjust and what is not. And we tend to transplant, I feel, transfer these kind of views onto the nature. 
the frog being eaten by the snake. The bird taking the mayfly. And perhaps there in this world that we are participating in, it's simply that this activity in this process and dynamic of life is taking place. But where violence occurs, where injustice occurs, where the lack of understanding of wholesomeness and unhealthiness and unwholesomeness isn't so much to be pinpointed in the lives of creatures, in the lives of, of animals and fish and reptiles and the birds of the air. Perhaps that condition is rather to be pointed into our, and looked at in terms of our own lives rather than, as we so easily do, transfer that onto the animal kingdom, the bird kingdom, the fish kingdom. And if our judgments and our right and wrong and good and bad with regard to the nature drops away, then again perhaps there's a, a new empathy with. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. Such stark contrasts in life with all the injustice which accompanies it. It's one very difficult for heart and mind, I feel, to deal with. To deal with in a clear and balanced way. And we know it in our Western world. All of us have to take responsibility. And one of the questions which is taking place, and a very important one in the peace movement, in the thoughtful, caring peace movement, is the question, who is the enemy? Because what has happened, and not surprisingly given the nature of divisiveness within our minds, is that we have this tendency and we see it in ourselves, finding expression of putting the blame somewhere, finding fault with, in that sometimes aggressive and judgmental way we fall into, because our heart in some way or other is reaching out or trying to reach out to the oppressed, to the underprivileged, to that child in Uganda who's all skin and bones, and we've been informed and we're informed again and again of this situation. We know how much and how many privileges that we have. And just sometimes something is able to touch and to touch deeply and it brings a response. If it's a genuine response, it's a giving one. 
if it doesn't bring about a giving response, it's simply a feeling. And that feeling may be important to the degree, but it isn't compassion. Compassion is never and never was a feeling. Compassion is an action. And when the action is there for us, there is the compassion. And yet, as I say, the division of the mind is to place blame because we, the West, are the main producers of the arms, the main exporter of the arms. And though we pride ourselves on not having a war, world war for the last 30 years, etc., etc., we've exported it. And yet, when we say they, the military, the government, the president, and so forth, we create this separation with all the aggression that can accompany it. And so one of the questions, and one of the ways of working with this, is instead of saying they, we. We have created this situation. We are responsible for it. And we have to explore ways, all of us together, to change this monstrous situation and the violation of life. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. And in this, Thich Nhat Hanh has written a commentary on this passage. And I remember being here a year ago and Jamie said to me that he, was, he would read one evening at the end of the day this, the poet, this poem. And knowing this poem rather well and having been touched by this poem as many are, I remember my immediate re reaction was some concern because of the potency of this particular verse. And it touched, it reminded me of a dear friend of mine, Ajahn Gowid, he, he was a monk. And rather radical in his ideas, we both had the same teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa. And he went to an island in the Gulf of Siam. And with a handful of monks, they began to establish a somewhat similar kind of monastic setting in which the monks did their practice, lived the monastic life, but also, which is not known in Theravada, began to grow their own, own plants, their own vegetables and fruit trees. And each day would practice Tai Chi and lived communally in a different kind of way. And during the period of time that uh, 
Ajahn was there, came Adama, his Buddhist name. Some of the bodies of the Vietnamese refugees on the boats were washed up on the island and some had been brutalized and shot and, and they'd been robbed and the boats had been run down. And he protested, he protested vigorously to the Thais and to the Thai pirates. To such a degree that it be, his life was threatened, it became quite unsafe for him. And he had to leave and he came to stay with us and friends in Germany and several months with other friends in, in Australia before it was safe enough for him to return. And all this is a harsh and brutal fact, brutal reality too of life and in stark contrast to the bud which arrives on the spring branch. And Thich Nhat Hanh says in the, slight preview, in the preview to the poem, I have a poem for you. It is called Please Call Me By My True Names. The poem is about three of us. The first is a 12-year-old girl, one of the boat people crossing the Gulf of Thailand. She was raped by a sea pirate. After that, she threw herself into the ocean. The other person is the sea pirate who was born in a remote village in Thailand. And the third person is me. I had a lot of problems because I was very angry, of course. But I could not take sides against the sea pirate. If I could, it would be easier for me. But I did not, because I thought that if I were born in his village and were living his kind of life, economic, educational and so on, it is very likely that I would now be that sea pirate. So it is not easy to take sides in this respect. And out of suffering I wrote this poem, Please Call Me By My True Names, because I have several names. And when you call me by my names, I have to say yes. And perhaps that that communication to us is to reach us, reach ourselves, reach into ourselves in such a way that this separation and pinpointing and all that accompanies it is unsatisfactory and yet in not in such a way that you and I deny the realities of life and deny the stark polarities which we have to face with day and day day in and day out but it is to be in touch with them it is to know about them it is to experience the laughter and the crying and the fear and the hope and so that not in any way are we turning our back on life, but we're touching somewhere in which our heart reaches out equally 
to the pirate as to the 12-year-old girl on the boat. I'm a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I'm the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labour camp. And that old saying that we use sometimes has a relevance and an importance for us. There but for the grace of God go I. And how we see in our life and the movement and expression of our life in a way the enormity of the good fortune of sitting here today being together spending a day together free, very free to say what we wish to say feel our life feel the nature around us feel safe and secure in the knowledge that our action isn't going to be destroyed, that we have some degree of freedom. And whereas many of our brothers and our sisters on this planet, in countless numbers of movements, political, social, religious, spiritual, live under threat every day. Right now, in countless places all over the planet, in this country and in other countries. And as our heart must reach out for those, it also must reach out and work with those who are not only prisoned, but the jailers as well. My life, my joy, is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. And in that fullness of our being, with our pain and with our joy, allowing ourselves to experience it and be in touch with it in such a way that it's no longer my pain, it's no longer my joy, but it's the joy of the earth. It's the pain of the earth. And in our joy and in our pain, we are unusually close to life and to each other. Thich Nhat says, Worry and sorrow cling to our lives and we want to let them go. How shall we do this? Take firm, calm steps. Take courageous steps. Be alert to your burdens of worry and sorrow. Strong-willed in your determination to put them down. Ask yourself, why should I wish to keep this weight on my shoulders? From such awareness, decide to let worry and sorrow fall away. If you want to, you can. Like taking off a raincoat and shaking off all the raindrops that are clinging to it. 
And within ourselves and the potential of ourselves, all is possible. Never underestimate the capacity of heart and mind to let go, to give up, to shred. It has been the testimony of women and men for generations. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. In this poem, which has been, thousands of copies of this poem has been printed and we who are connected with the peace, peace work have given out thousands of them on peace marches and on demonstrations and on friends because it serves as a vehicle. It serves as a vehicle for all of us so that we can wake up and so the door of the heart can be left open, the door of compassion. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings live with wisdom. So let's have two or three minute quiet period together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.